0: Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Our guest this week is Edward Slingerland, professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia, who tries to answer the question, why do people drink, in his latest book titled Drunk. How We Sipped, Danced and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Professor Slingerlin looks at the evolutionary role of intoxication and the impact that alcohol has played throughout human history. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Edward Slingerlin, your new book titled Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization has a bit of an eye-popping opening. I wanna read it to our, our viewers. People like to masturbate. They also like to get drunk and eat Twinkies. Not typically all at the same time, but that's a matter of personal preference. From a scientific perspective, we have long been told these otherwise variegated pleasures have one thing in common. They are evolutionary mistakes. Sneaky ways that humans have figured out how to get something for nothing. You've been researching why people drink. Were the scientists right or wrong?
1: They're wrong, is my argument, uh, and for a variety of reasons. So this if alcohol is a mistake, it's an incredibly costly mistake. So unlike masturbation, which is har- relatively harmless, <laughs> you don't lose a lot of time. Um, Evolution is not going to get too worried about people and other species <clears throat> gaming the system. So getting a, a pleasure reward for no good reason, for something that the, the reward was not designed for. In the case of Twinkies, it's more serious, so it leads to diabetes and uh, obesity, all these problems, but it's a really recent problem. So the uh, taste for sugar and fat that drives us to eat Twinkies is a relatively recent problem. It's, it's really just in modern industrial societies where you have access to junk food and things like that, and it's still not even to this day universal. There, there are plenty of places in the world where getting enough fat and sugar is still a problem. So one of these uh, prop, one of these uh, hijacks or mistakes is not really very costly. The other one's very recent. Alcohol, on the other hand, is very costly. It is damaging. It's a poison. It's it's physiologically damaging. It damages her liver, raises cancer risk. It causes alcoholism, so it's estimated that up to 15% of the human population is prone to alcoholism, so it can lead to, and alcoholism obviously leads to all sorts of tragic consequences for both the individual who has alcoholism and, and everyone around him or her, so families, societies. Uh, it's It's costly in terms of resources, so it's estimated that in ancient Sumer, <clears throat> so where we have uh, beginnings, that's where uh, beer is a major, major staple, up to half of the grain, so half of their food was turned into beer. So they're taking half of their food stuff and turning it into a liquid neurotoxin, which, is, which seems very strange if it's just a mistake. And in modern industrial societies, it's estimated that about a third of people's budgets, household budgets on food and drink go toward alcohol. And that's almost certainly an underestimate because of the prevalence of, of black markets and things like that, and people underreport alcohol purchases. So if it's a if it's a mistake, it's a very costly mistake, and it's surprising that it's been around for so long. Um, and then that leads to the second issue: it's not a recent problem. And this actually surprised me when I started doing the research. We the standard story is we discovered agriculture. We settled down, we started growing grains. And then we noticed that if we left the grains sitting around in some water, they would ferment, maybe it tasted all right, so we try it out. Uh, so in that story, alcohol is kind of this, again, a kind of mistake, it's a byproduct of agriculture. But the archeological record is suggesting now that we were making beers at least out of wild grains long before we had agriculture so we have direct evidence as far as 13,000 years ago and some indirect evidence as far back as 20,000 years ago so hunter gatherers were making beers out of wild grains and the suggestion is that agriculture actually started as a byproduct from wanting to get drunk so we were we were motivated to make better beer and so we started cultivating grains making them more productive so the drive to settle down and create agriculture was driven by this desire to get intoxicated rather than the other way around. So the antiquity and the cost of alcohol use makes it really unlikely that it's just an evolutionary mistake.
0: You're joining me from Western Canada uh, and you are a professor of philosophy. So how did someone with your background get interested in the use of alcohol?
1: It's a good question. Most of my colleagues would like to me to answer that question as well. They're puzzled by the topic of the new book. It actually grows naturally out of previous work I did. So my, my day job is early Chinese philosophy, so early Taoism and Confucianism. And I've written previously on attention there. So all of these thinkers that I look at in early China want you to be spontaneous. They want you to be in this state. It's in Chinese, it's called Wu Wei, or I translate it as effortless action. It's kind of like being in the zone when you play sports. So it's a state where you lose a sense of yourself as an agent. You, everything seems to just work. Everything seems effortless and perfect. You have charisma. You're very creative. You can solve problems. But they have a tension. So they they want you to be spontaneous. But there's a problem. How do you how do you try not to try? That's, that's a topic of one of my earlier books, trying not to try. How do you consciously make yourself spontaneous? It seems like it's a paradox and it actually is from a cognitive scientific perspective, a paradox. And in one of these texts, one of the, these early Taoist texts, it's really kind of a side comment, but they compare the person who's in a way to someone who's drunk. They they you know, lose a sense of themselves, they're relaxed, they're feeling spontaneous. And that put the seed in my mind, I think, of this idea that this is attention. You can't solve it through just forcing your way through it. You can't try to be relaxed. So maybe chemical intoxicants, especially alcohol, are this cultural tool that we've used to get around the paradox, to, to basically reach inside the brain and turn down the, the prefrontal cortex, the, the part that's in charge of attention and control, just turn it down a couple notches. And it might be a, a tool that societies have used to, to create artificial, if you want to think of it this way, a kind of artificial spontaneity that might have important functional benefits.
0: Well, to that end, uh, we were looking around for some clips that might illustrate the conversation. And uh, Nick Reval, our producer, found one from a movie from 1945 called The Lost Weekend with Ray Milland, And <sighs> he, he's the drinker at the bar in this clip. And uh, let's hear how he describes how alcohol makes him feel.
1: Matt, weave me another. Better take it easy. Oh, don't worry about me. Just let me know when it's a quarter of six. Okay. Come on, Matt. Join me one little jigger of dreams, huh? No, thanks. You don't approve of drinking? Not the way you drink. It shrinks my liver, doesn't it, Matt? It pickles my kidneys, yes. But what does it do to my mind? It tosses the sandbags overboard so the balloon can soar. Suddenly, I'm above the ordinary. I'm competent, supremely competent. I'm walking a tightrope when I reform. I am one of the great ones. Edward
0: Slingerland, does that sentiment ring true <laughs> with your research?
1: Yeah, I actually quote a bit of that in the book. <laughs> so this is there's this ancient and ubiquitous idea of alcohol going along with creativity. So an association between alcohol and poets or artists, writers. And I argue in the book that this is uh, not—it's not random. There actually is. We have um, very good scientific evidence that alcohol can help enhance creativity. So one of the studies I look at uh, had subjects trying to solve what's called a lateral thinking task. So it's a kind of task where you need to—you can't just power your way through to a solution. You have to see it, see an insight. And they got—they either gave subjects placebo or they gave them a drink that had alcohol in it. And people seem to do best at this task when they got to about 0.08 blood alcohol content. So that's at, at, about two drinks. It's about two drinks in. It's about when you should stop driving. So when you shouldn't drive is when you can actually start thinking more creatively. And interestingly, I'd, I was writing the proposal for this book and I'd gone through 10 iterations or so. And my, my agent kept saying, that's not good. It's not working. And she was right. It didn't, there was something missing, it didn't pop. And I realized I hadn't taken my own advice or the advice from the evidence from the scientific studies I was I surveying. Was I hadn't written any of it drunk. And so I actually sat down with my laptop at a hotel bar. I was on a business trip about to meet some colleagues and had a Negroni. And about three quarters of the way through the Negroni, um, I wrote those, those lines that you read at the beginning of the show. Um, I was like, oh, we, that's the, the jazzy way to start the book. And, it, and the feeling that I had was really of taking dictation. I got into a relaxed state of mind and it really felt like I was just writing down words that were being read to me from some part of my brain. So there is this, this ability, the prefrontal cortex, which is really important for getting stuff done. I mean, it's, it allows us to control impulses and stay focused on task. And um, it's, it's a very important part of the brain to have. But I, I review evidence that it interferes with creativity. And if you can figure out a way to turn it down <clears throat> temporarily for a few minutes, it helps.
0: Were you surprised, you published during the pandemic year, were you surprised that a number of jurisdictions during the pandemic labeled alcohol sales as essential businesses?
1: All jurisdictions did. <laughs> it's really interesting. It's, there was debate about, you know, gun stores and golf courses, there was no debate about liquor stores. I think in the United States, Pennsylvania briefly tried to close liquor stores and it lasted about 12 hours before the outcry forced them to reopen them. So there is, I mean, that to me is one of the, the pieces of evidence that this is, alcohol use is woven into our culture and into our daily lives in a really basic way. And that's, that's part of the puzzle that I wanna try to explain in the book.
0: So you come at this from history, and you mix it with biochemistry, genetics, neuroscience all together. You, you write in the, in the closing pages of the book that you've been thinking about this book for quite a while. So what, what really brought you to the point to say it's time to get this together and publish it?
1: Yeah, I think because of the the growing feeling that this, we had a scientific problem that needed to be solved. We had this kind of mystery hiding in plain sight. So some of the previous work I've done is on religion and looking at the evolutionary cognitive underpinnings of of why we believe in supernatural beings, why we engage in religious rituals. And my approach to religion has been kind of what, this is a puzzling, from an evolutionary perspective, puzzling behavior. We're worshiping beings, as far as we know, that don't exist. We're doing these costly things that are really not having any real effect, um, even though we think they may be having effects why has this behavior evolved and and why has it stayed a part of the human repertoire and i came to feel that intoxication was one of those things why are people so drawn to intoxicants and and the shallow answer is well you know why do people like the basic question of drunk is why do people like to get drunk the superficial answer is it makes us feel good it's just pleasurable but that the deeper question it just pushes the question back is why does it make us feel pleasurable? Why does evolution allow it to continue to make us feel to experience pleasure? And that just came to feel feel to me like a puzzle that I really needed to dig into.
0: Are we the only species that seeks intoxication?
1: No, other other species will, will drink alcohol if they can get their hands on it. Uh, so I tell the story actually of a uh, uh, family lore has it that someone in, uh, extended in-law family in Italy kept a lemur, a pet lemur, that got into a store of alcohol swabs and you know so squeezed the swabs and drank enough alcohol to make it drunk, and it fell off this landing, and that's how that's that was the end of the lemur. So animals will, if they can get into alcohol, drink it. So it is it is hitting a pleasure center in a lot of different brain systems. Humans obviously are the only ones who have really made producing serious quantities of alcohol center of their their organized activity. So we've been, we've been focusing on how to make alcohol and how to make it more potent for really as long as we've been doing anything organized as a species. And that's really unusual. There's something, we have a special drive to seek intoxication that other species don't seem to have.
0: From the scientific perspective, uh, you we always hear that alcohol is a depressant, but uh, you explain in the book that it's actually got two phases. Would you talk about the two phases?
1: Alcohol is very complicated. so the uh, journalist Stephen Brown calls it a pharmacological hand grenade. It's when it hits your brain is doing so many different things and often all at once. So it's a stimulant in various ways. It stimulates uh, serotonin production. It boosts endorphins. So the, the feeling of elation, it it's raising mood. It's also relaxing you the way it endorphins do. It makes you feel good about people around you. It's the depressant part of it is the part that's targeting the Prefrontal cortex, along with other systems in your brain, but that's that's the major one I focus on. So it's down-regulating your your prefrontal cortex, turning it down a few notches, so that one way to look at it is the it's taking away the playground monitor or it's giving the playground monitor a little vacation, <laughs> so the kids can play on their own. So it's 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 uh, decreasing inhibitions for good and for bad, uh, and it's making you feel good about yourself and the people around you. And then, once you get up to higher blood alcohol content levels, the depressant effects start to swamp out all the other effects, and that's when you get people falling asleep or passing out. So it, it really depends on the, the dosage, how quickly you're drinking, wh- whether you have food in your stomach or not, it, it, it really is variable. But um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a hodgepodge of different effects all ha- happening at the same time.
0: In addition to uh, describing the the importance of the prefrontal cortex of our brains on human capabilities, you also have this theory of the three C's that human beings have that distinguish them as us as a species, and uh, how important they are in the creation of community and our success as a species. Would you talk about that theory?
1: We're primates, so our closest relatives are chimpanzees and bonobos. And our basic biology is primate biology because of that. <clears throat> and yet, if you look at how we live, especially in large scale societies, So I'm here, I live in downtown Vancouver, and I'm looking out at this view of all these skyscrapers, buildings, and cars moving around. Vancouver looks a lot more like a beehive or an ant colony than the kind of settlement you'd see chimpanzees or early humans, pre-agricultural humans living in. So we're primates, but we the way we cooperate, we cooperate on a scale that looks more like social insects. And this is a puzzle. How do you get human beings to cooperate on a large scale? So the three C's are that we're creative, we're cultural and we're communal. So creative, we are dependent on creativity in a way no other animal is. So we, we need tools. The, the cheetah, cheetahs don't sit around trying to figure out better ways to catch gazelles when right, are coming up with bows and arrows. They just, they have teeth, they have claws, they can run. And that, and gazelles have their natural defenses. They can get better at this, but it's through genetic evolution, not through cultural evolution. Humans are helpless without tools. We are so dependent, we're biologically dependent on tools. So if you think about the, the simplest, most early tool is fire and we've become so dependent on cooking our food so we use fire we cook food it makes that food more digestible easier it's kind of like pre-digesting food for an infant or something we we do this for ourselves and our jaws have changed so we have our teeth are smaller our jaws are less robust and our digestive tract is smaller than it should be for a primate of our size because we've become biologically dependent on fire so we need fire and we need tools Uh, humans can't capture the food they need without tools and so the environment's always changing so we need to be coming up with new tools better tools we're also always competing with other cultural groups who are trying to exploit the same resources that we're exploiting so we need to get better tools to compete with them So we're dependent on creativity in a way that no other species is. And and I argue this is one of the functions of intoxication. It helps to to free the mind up so we can come up with these kind of new solutions. And I talk a little bit about psychedelics in in this regard as well. Uh, We're cultural and communal. We need to be open to other people to learn things from other people, be open to trusting them and trusting that the information that they're giving us is reliable. We need to be able to cooperate with strangers in what's called public goods games or sometimes prisoner dilemma type situations. So we need to cooperate in situations where we we have no guarantee that the other person's gonna cooperate. We just have to trust them. And it seems like humans have evolved to do this by reading emotional cues in other people. You know, are you trustworthy? Do you seem like a nice person? Can I go into business with you? Can I go on this hunt with you? And alcohol, I argue, is one way we, we do a better job of sussing out potential cooperators. So alcohol makes it harder to lie, for instance. If you paralyze the prefrontal cortex, it's harder to make up a lie. And also, and this is maybe more surprising, it makes us better at detecting lies. So humans, it turns out, are not, when we're focusing consciously on detecting lies, we don't do a very good job of it. But if we just relax and kind of take in a variety of cues, we do a better job. And so I'm I'm arguing alcohol in the same way that uh, when we meet, we shake hands to show that we're not holding a weapon in our right hand. Cultures use intoxicants at treaty meetings or business meetings, anything where potentially hostile people need to figure out a way to cooperate as a kind of cognitive disarmament. If I sit down and start drinking with you, I'm basically taking out my prefrontal cortex and putting it on the table and saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not armed anymore cognitively. You can trust me, you can, the things that I'm saying are sincere and authentic. So it's a tool And in, in this way, chemical intoxicants, especially alcohol, have been used as a tool by humans to, to help us adapt to this unusual niche that we've grown accustomed to.
0: Your book gives some examples throughout history and in modern times where uh, alcohol has been deployed specifically, uh, in your theory, to uh, lower the instincts of that PFC, the prefrontal cortex, and have a positive gain. So I wanted you to talk about some of them. One is General George Washington and liquor for the troops.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So he believed that uh, it was very important for building morale among the troops to give them alcohol. And this is where the the bonding effect of alcohol becomes important. So, and, and this has to do with lowering the PFC in the sense of being able to, you have a feeling that the person you're interacting with, you're interacting with the real person, not some put on version of them. But this is also where some of those other effects are important. So the ra- the boosting of endorphins is probably is crucial here. So as that endorphin levels rise in your body, as so you drink alcohol, you start to feel better about the people you're with. You start to feel like you're part of their team. You start to feel like, oh, we're a team maybe against other teams, but we have a group identity. So I, I look at some experimental work that's been done, that showed that if you put strangers together in tables and have them engage in conversation, they're supposed to be doing some other tasks, but really the experiments about the alcohol. Uh, And it's got a placebo arm as well. So placebo, people people drinking a non-alcoholic drink that seems alcoholic, but is not are just like people who aren't drinking anything at all. Um, They have trouble hitting it off. Uh, If you look at the videos of them interacting, it's kind of a little awkward. They have uh, fake smiles, these kind of, you know, like smiling for the camera smiles. If you look at the um, alcohol conditioned people, they're hitting it off. Uh, They're smiling, their smiles are what's so-called Duchenne smiles the sincere smile you get when you're really amused. And afterwards they report feeling uh, bonded. I really like these other people. I felt like they were part of my team. I felt like we could work together. So, it's, so people like George Washington didn't have access to this research obviously, but they, they had a gut feeling that getting people who needed to, to trust each other in dangerous situations and work as a team together, getting them together and giving them some alcohol was very helpful.
0: A modern version of that was an example you wrote about the Navy SEALs training program and the use of alcohol toward the end as a bonding. Would you talk about that?
1: Yeah, this is just an anecdote from a a relatively recent book called Stealing Fire, that, that this Navy SEAL commander had this method for people going, taking Navy SEALs through this brutal training process. And it's very physically demanding, very mentally demanding. But he thought a crucial capstone to the training was the last night they all went out to a bar, and got quite drunk. <laughs> and the the experience of letting down your guard, you know, taking taking that mental machinery out and putting it on the table, really, he thought, did the final work of gelling them as a group and making it making it uh, possible for them to work together as a tightly knit unit. So, and the Navy SEALs are pretty. Uh, pretty evidence based. <laughs> I mean, they want to, they, they have the clear things they want to do and they, they try out different techniques to, to achieve those goals. And so I think the fact that successful organizations like this are using alcohol as a tool, as a team building tool, is very revealing.
0: From the tech world, you had an, a personal example of the time that you were led into Google's whiskey room.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'd given a talk at one of the Google campuses and mentioned, I'd mentioned this study the study about the 0.08 leading to um, higher creativity. And it, this was really just a footnote in my talk about spontaneity I was giving them. But the, when the talk was over, someone in the audience put their hand up right away. And he said, have you, you ever heard of the Balmer Peak? And I hadn't. But this is supposedly, it may be apocryphal. But supposedly Steve Ballmer, the former CEO of Microsoft, discovered this very narrow blood alcohol content level where he was supernaturally good at coding. So he was not so good, not so good. And then he got really great at this blood alcohol content and then it went down again. And supposedly he would keep himself hooked up to an IV of alcohol to to hover right at that sweet spot. (laughs) And it's, it's hard to imagine someone actually doing that. But it gets at this idea that, people have independently discovered that at a certain level of inebriation, they're peaking in their performance. They're, they're able to think out of the box. They're able to think more creatively. And, and they just, Steve Palmer independently discovered this. And then after the talk, I was being taken on a tour of the campus and they said, okay, well, we know what our first stop is. And they took me to this whiskey room. So this is amazing. Uh, Great selection of single malt scotches and and, a foosball table and some beanbag chairs, places to relax. And they said that when they get into as a team, when they run into a wall, so they're trying to solve some problem, they're not solving it, banging their head against the wall isn't working instead of remaining in front of their computers and continuing to bang their heads against the wall, they go to this room and they pour themselves a scotch and they sit in some beanbag chairs and they just start talking. And what they discover is that often one or another person at a certain blood alcohol content level will have a new idea about how to get around this problem. And so again, just like the Navy SEALs example, this, this really stuck in my mind as a way that successful organizations are using chemical intoxicants, instrumentally, they're, they're using them as tools to help solve very specific problems. Uh,
0: but as you write in the book, uh, there are some people not invited to those parties. Uh, people who don't drink, uh, oftentimes women, are not invited in. So that's an example of the, one of the downsides of using it as a tool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, you create an in-group, you're creating out-groups. So that's one of the problems. The other problem is just that the way alcohol is deployed in a lot of professional environments, for instance, it's, you know, you see it professional conferences, it's, it is the case that at professional conferences, a lot of the real work gets done, not in the talks, the official program, but after the official programs over when people are going to receptions, when they're hanging out at the hotel bar, having a couple drinks. And this is a tricky subject because it is the case that this is where uh, new collaborations get struck. This is where you have a new idea, talking to a colleague from a completely different part of your field that you'd never talk to normally. Important things happen in these environments. And yet it's the case that they're hostile to it. If I were a young woman, I would feel very uncomfortable hanging out at a hotel bar with a bunch of colleagues. And so this is, I talk about this at the end of the book. This alcohol has got this dark side to it. If we wanna think about Dionysus, the God of wine as giving gifts. Dionysus, one of the gifts he gave was to Midas, the golden touch. So he gave him, you want gold? Here you go. And it didn't turn out that great for Midas. So the gifts of Dionysus are dangerous. They come with downsides. And I think as a culture, we haven't done a very good job of figuring out how to use alcohol in a way that makes everyone feel comfortable. So um, people who don't feel, women may not feel comfortable hanging around in a bar environment where people are drinking. Uh, If you're Muslim and you don't drink for religious reasons, you're frozen out of that if you are a recovering alcoholic, if you need to get up early the next morning to take your kids to daycare, if you have to go home to take care of your kids, you don't have, to, you don't have the luxury of hanging around after work at the bar, it freezes out a lot of people. And so it's a, it's, there's no clear answer to this, but I think that uh, organizations need to figure out a way to use alcohol in a way that doesn't disadvantage people who don't drink.
0: Well, following up on the Muslims, they're an example of one uh, major religious group, along with the Mormons, uh, Pentecostals, who uh, disavow all alcohol consumption, and yet their societies have been enormously successful. So does that turn your theory on its head a bit?
1: No, I think actually the fact that they've been relatively successful uh, supports my theory, because uh, the easiest, if alcohol is a cost, then alcoholic prohibition should be awesome for cultural groups so much so that they should outcompete all other cultural groups. And I, I, there's a story I tell in the book, a historical account from the 700s AD. And it's an Islamic official who's traveling in what's now Russia to meet a recently converted ruler, I think to check up on them and make sure they're actually being a good Muslim. And along the trip, he runs into some Vikings it's one of the, the first accounts we have of Vikings from outsiders. And he's really impressed by their size and their fierceness. and But he's horrified by their drinking. And the account the he gives of their drinking from internal Viking sources seems pretty accurate. So every night they just get blind, drunk. They would fall into the fire. They would hurt each other. They'd get into fights. And he really thought this was animalistic behavior and was amazed that these people could even function and, and yet they did function. And in fact, they function quite effectively. So if you wanna talk about a successful cultural group, the Vikings were pretty successful. They, 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 they first of all, a uh, large proportion of Northern Europeans are descendants of them. So they're genetically fairly successful. They, they were the first to sail to the Americas. Um, they were a very successful cultural group. If alcohol really only had negative consequences a cultural group like like Islam that came up with a solution to it, let's just prohibit alcohol consumption, should have completely wiped out cultural groups that use alcohol. And yet that's not the case. So in, I don't have this in the book, but in one of the talks I give on this, I show a map of where where prohibition is actually in place right now in the world. And it's not very many places. It's, you know, they're all Muslim countries and it's it's not it's not as prevalent as you would predict if alcohol really only had costs and there weren't any benefits on the other side of the the uh, equation.
0: When you're looking at the world and, and regions and how they might approach drinking, you use the southern Mediterranean culture and its incorporation of alcohol into their culture from early ages as a comparison to for example, uh, northern European cultures where distilled spirits uh, and binges and, and the like, Russia, for example, stand in contrast. What's, the, what's to learn about looking at those two different approaches?
1: So it's probably the case that all, all human populations have about a 15% of the population is prone to alcoholism. And yet alcoholism rates that we observe in different countries are, are quite variable. So Russia has very high alcoholism. Italy has very low rates of alcoholism. So what, there's gotta be some explanation for that. And it's not genetic, it's cultural. And this is where we get to this idea of Northern versus Southern drinking cultures. And this is referring to Europe, but in anthropological circles, they talk about, for instance, Northern drinking cultures focus on distilled liquors, they drink to get drunk. Drinking is sep is a separate activity. It's something you do when you're you just drink. It's separate from meal taking and other things. Public drunkenness is not only not frowned upon, but maybe considered kind of heroic or manly, like it's something guys do. It's drinking alcohol is considered taboo, So children aren't allowed to do it and it's kind of it's forbidden. There are strict rules about who's allowed to drink. And those seem to encourage binge drinking and unhealthy drinking patterns. If you look at Southern European cultures, they drink more wines and beers, so lower alcoholic beverages. They have distilled liquors, but they tend to use them in very small amounts at the beginning or the end of a meal. And it's all about the meal. You only drink alcohol at the meal table and you'll drink it lunch and at dinner but you only drink at the table. And it's part of life. It's just part of what one does when one's having a meal. Kids are included. So children get a little bit of wine at the table, usually watered down when they're really young, but but stronger and stronger as they get older. And so kids learn that alcohol is just a normal part of life. It's part of essential pleasure that you enjoy as you're enjoying a good meal. And uh, drunkenness is frowned upon. So people who get Drink to the point of being visibly drunk are disapproved of. And all of these, these are just purely and mostly implicit cultural practices. Like no, people don't lay these out for you. You just learn them. So I learned this when I, um, my ex-wife is half Italian. We spent a lot of time in Italy and I learned very quickly. So I come from maybe more of a Northern drinking culture just from being American. Americans tend to drink like Northern Europeans. And you know, I learned that you just you drink wine at the table and you don't take your wine away after dinner and go sit in your room and read a book and drink a glass of wine. People would kind of look at me weird. And I was like, oh yeah, one doesn't do that. Um, so that seems to help. So incorporating alcohol in a healthy way into a, your daily life in a communal setting in the setting of a meal seems to help people integrate it in a way that it doesn't become a danger.
0: You say that the United States, by comparison to these two examples, has the quote most individualized and fragmented drinking culture. What do you mean?
1: Drinking historically, drinking has always been a communal event. So you drink in a public ritual setting or the setting where you're sharing food with people. You you don't drink in private. You don't you typically in most cultures don't drink in your own private homes. I think what's extreme about America, there's a couple of extreme things about America. There's a there's this kind of American Puritanism where we we like pleasures but we think they're bad, and so we tend to engage in them in this very kind of unhealthy way because they're taboo. Um, again, unlike Europe, where something like alcohol is more of a, a part of daily life, but American American life is more centered around the suburbs and kind of the individual home. So the fact that uh, you can go to a drive-through liquor store and have them load up your SUV with vodka and twinkies and firearms and then drive home and have all that stuff in your house is just evolutionarily unprecedented and it's not the way people tend to drink in say southern Europe um, so I think that Americans have have, are much more private drinkers, so we drink at home. And when we're drinking at home, we're missing all of the types of signals that we normally would get from our society about slow down, um, match this drinking pace, don't drink too much. And that's why you're gonna see, um, you see higher alcohol, our alcoholism levels in, in the US look a little bit more like Russia than they they do Italy.
0: Yeah, I wanted to share with our audience some statistics that you give. The sources are World and Data 2017. In the United States, 15.1 million adult alcoholics, 88,000 annual alcohol-related deaths, uh, estimated cost to the U.S. economy of $249 billion, and an estimated 10% of children in homes with alcoholic parents. To some of the uh, side effects, uh, or consequences rather, of of alcohol consumption. A hundred years ago, the United States, over concerns about the impact of alcohol on society, tried prohibition. Uh, as a constitutional amendment, which w- was, of course, uh, uh, then dropped. Uh, we have a clip, and just to put a little historical relevance to it, from 1933, members of Congress speaking after a legislation le- re-legalizing beer containing uh, 3.2% alcohol. Let's just put this into the mix right now.
1: This is the day we have long hoped for. It is a consummation devoutly to be wished. We are all happy. Let us drink
0: to a further liberation of the American people. Happy days! To their further income and taxes and to the
1: success of America. Happy days are here again. again. Close it. it. Salute.
0: All the members of Congress hoisting a beer. Happy days are here again. (laughs) Happy
1: days are here again. That's great.
0: Why, Why didn't prohibition work?
1: It didn't work for a variety of reasons. It top-down solutions like this often don't don't work. Um, I think it the only the only pro so people cultures have been trying prohibition since we've had alcohol. So since we've started making alcohol, which has been since we've been doing anything in an organized fashion, we've also been trying to ban alcohol. So one of the earliest legal codes we have from early China. Is, is, a, is a prohibition edict. Anyone caught drinking will be put to death. And it just didn't work very well. The Chinese kept drinking. I think this this, this legal edict was found in, in the same tomb that, that included lots of elaborate drinking vessels. Uh, the, the trick to get prohibition to stick, the trick seems to be combining it with religion. So there's something about this is why, and is, you know, we talk about Islam as a prohibitionist religion. It's got a kind of mixed historical record. So there have been plenty of places in, through in times in history where Islamic cultures winked at drinking. You know, elites drank. Some of the best wine poetry we have comes from Persia. So it comes from these uh, Islamic Persian uh, poets and writers who are drinking openly and, and celebrating wine. So Islam has a kind of uh, mixed record on this. It seem, Prohibition seems to be so counter to what people want to do that you need to make it a super prohibition by combining it with religion. So, so that's why certain strains of Islam have been successful. That's why the Mormons have been successful. But I argue in the book, if you once you're doing that, it, it starts to become so counter to basic human desires and to some basic functions of alcohol that the the prohibition is itself the point. So the it's not so much that you're getting this benefit from banning alcohol. It's that by so dramatically going against what people naturally want to do, it's a kind of signal. So in the cognitive science, evolution of religion literature, we talk about these kind of costly signals that show that, I really take this group seriously. I'm gonna cut off the foreskin of my penis. I'm gonna not eat pork. I'm gonna do these things that demonstrate to everyone that I really believe in this group and what it stands for. And so alcohol prohibition when it's successful seems to be only in the context of signaling membership in a religious group. And that's not the case with American prohibition. It was just a legal statute.
0: Uh, We have a a little more than 15 minutes left in our conversation. I I was thinking about, you mentioned Pennsylvania earlier. Pennsylvania has, uh, as part of its regulation of alcohol, state liquor stores, as does Virginia here in the Washington area. Uh, So the idea there is to control public access in some degree through regulation. But at the same time, those states make money from the sale of alcohol and they run commercials on television and radio encouraging people to buy the products. <laughs> so right. talk about mixed messages there for society. What are people supposed to take away from that?
1: I think the, it's a recognition, mixed messages are reflections of ambivalent attitudes. And we have an ambivalent attitude toward alcohol and for good reason. So it's not a mistake that alcohol is potentially really dangerous. And something I talk about in the book is how alcohol has become more dangerous relatively recently. So I think on fairly long historical time scales, evolutionary time scales, we've been drinking, we've been making alcoholic beverages and drinking them for probably 20,000 years. Certainly, we have direct evidence from 13,000 years ago. But for most of that history, we've been drinking relatively weak, maybe 2 3% beers. And if we had fruit wine, maybe we'd get them up to 8 or 9% uh, alcohol by volume. So relatively mild. If you're drinking, if your sociality is focused on a 2 3% beer, it's going to be pretty safe. So it's going to be hard to get really dangerously drunk. It's going to be hard to, you're not going to be able to black out. You're not going to be able to kill yourself with something like that, just because the volume of liquid you'd have to consume is so great. But about uh, 1300s in China and not really until the 1600s, 1700s in Europe, we figured out a way to make alcohols wildly more dangerous by getting around the natural limits of natural fermentation and distill liquors. So distillation is a fairly um, simple concept, but it's really hard to pull off in practice. It's where you're heating an alcoholic mixture, boiling off the ethanol and capturing it and turning it back into a liquid. So through that process, you can get something that's not quite 100, you can get in the 90s percent ABV. A A glass of vodka is just so much more potent than a glass of beer, that, that I think it really it's still just ethanol, but I think it should be considered a completely different drug. And so I think our ambivalence toward alcohol has become stronger in the, the past few hundred years for very for the very good reason that the forms of alcohol we possess now are much more dangerous. If you're drinking shots of vodka, you can blow right past .08 blood alcohol content sweet spot and in, into blackout territory and um, really uncontrolled. Behavior territory. So I think that um, you know the state liquor stores are advertising what they really what cultures would like us to do is drink in a responsible fashion. And I think one of the ways we can be successful in doing that is focusing more on beers and wines um, and being very cautious. One thing that's changed my behavior since I, I started writing this book, doing the research for this book, is I've become much more wary of distilled liquors. They're they're really dangerous.
0: If you can't uh, do an effective job as a government in in changing um, behaviors uh, through, through prohibition, I was thinking about the efforts of the group Mothers Against Drunk Driving and a 20-year campaign to educate the public about the consequences of drinking and driving. It ultimately uh, ended in legislation. We have another clip that I'm going to show real quickly here, that this is from the year 2000, then president of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, to speaking as the law was signed that changed the national blood alcohol content standard to .08. Let's listen briefly. For years, highway safety and public health advocates have worked to pass 0.08 BAC laws. But many state legislators have been under the influence of the alcohol and so-called hospitality industries. They have chosen to defeat 0.08 BAC bills despite the science and the public support of this life-saving legislation. This is MADD's 20th anniversary, and today is truly an historic moment in the fight against drunk driving. So, edwards they it took them 20 years, but in fact they were successful in passing that legislation. And you're well aware of all of the efforts in high schools to educate young people about the consequences of drunk driving that seemed like it had a positive impact on changing People's decision making about not not to stop drinking, but to stop driving when they were drinking. Can, it, it, are, are there other ways that that uh, as a society we can influence the consequences, if not the behavior of drinking itself?
1: Yeah, one way I actually don't talk about this in the book, but another way alcohol has become much more dangerous is motor vehicles. <laughs> so people just didn't have the the capacity to inflict harm on others in the way that we do once we're driving private motor vehicles. So that's another way in which we need to be a lot more cautious about alcohol use, especially in places outside of cities where it's safer in cities where you're just hopping on a bus or you're walking. But once people are behind a wheel of, of a very heavy, very fast moving vehicle, you should be much more concerned about alcohol. So so I think Mad was successful because they were able to connect this danger to visceral images of people, young people dying, of tragedies happening. The the way to get people to change their behavior is typically through emotions, not through statistics or reason. And so that's why I think they've they've been successful. And so if you want to uh, get people to drink in a more healthy fashion, I think you've got to have modeling of that So you need to have, uh, so for instance, adults, I think, you know, as a a parent, if you want your kids to drink responsibly, do you, you know, give them a pamphlet on drinking? Do you show them a video? I think the best way to do it is to model responsible drinking for them. And so for instance, my, my daughter is 14 and we have wine at Dinner, and I actually give her a bit to taste it to show, you know. And she's actually she's actually developed a pretty good palate. She's uh, last night, she was like, "This is got it's a little sweet. I don't like the sweetness." And it was a malbec. She was t- totally right. It had this kind of unpleasant unpleasant sweetness to it. I think doing stuff like that helps kids realize that alcohol is not this forbidden substance that if we get a hold of it, we should just drink as much as possible. It's just part of life. It's part of enjoying the steak that you're eating. It's part of um, what you do around the dinner table. And you drink in moderation. You don't don't drink to get drunk. And I'm hoping that having that ballast of experiencing Southern drinking culture, and she's spent a lot of time in Italy, so she's been around that drinking culture as well, will help her when she gets to university, where probably the most, I think, the most unhealthy drinking culture in the world is North America, North American University Fraternity Party, where you have young people whose PA- so the PSC doesn't develop fully until you're in your mid-20s, so 24 or so. So you have kids, basically, who still don't have fully developed prefrontal cortices yet, doing shots of liquor in opaque plastic cups. They have no idea what they're drinking, how much they're drinking. In a scenario that has no really no ritual regulation, uh, no cultural norms really, except to get drunk, um, that's about the most dangerous combination of things you could imagine. And so, um, how do you protect your kids from that? I think you've got to give them a different model. If that's the only model of drinking that they have, and they they learn it at university, is going to be problematic, and they're probably going to bring that problematic behavior into their adult lives.
0: But you do write in the book about a trend that seems to be developing among some segment of the millennial and gen z generation of of sober curious and sober bars. Uh, is that the right approach? It seemed to me like you were actually being a bit critical of them calling them technocratic and moralistic in their approaches.
1: Yeah, so there's a, there is a kind of uh, I call it a cheerful asceticism. There's a there is a suspicion of pleasure for pleasure's sake in some of this literature i think there are some great tips and takeaways so there's a book called mindful drinking by rosamund dean that i found really helpful and her point is that we often drink habitually so we we get home from work and we pour ourselves a glass of wine and we don't think do i actually want that glass of wine um do i need it we just drink it um so she she's arguing that if you're actually just every time you pour yourself a drink you think, do I do I really wanna have a drink? You may sometimes say no. And if you actually are mindful of what you're drinking as you're drinking it, you're gonna moderate your your drinking. It's when you, you're not paying attention that you drink faster. So I think there's some great uh, tips here. There, there are these sober bars that have popped up where people can go and socialize over virgin cocktails. So non-alcoholic cocktails. And that seems like a great idea because you're gonna get a lot of the same Buzz, you're going to get a lot of the same effects that you would get with alcohol without actually consuming alcohol. So I think these are all, these are all great tips. Um, What I worry about is this kind of um, pure, it's a kind of neo-Puritanism and I worry about it because it, it, it risks uh, causing us to make bad decisions because we're not taking into account the fact that humans like pleasure. And so the, most of the book is me arguing making an evolutionary argument for the usefulness of alcohol pleasure can't be a part of that alcohol uh, argument because uh, evolution doesn't care if we're happy or not it it uh, it uses pleasure as a tool to get us to do things it wants us to do and yet we are not our genes uh, we actually care a lot about pleasure and uh, it should be a valid goal to to enhance our pleasure so so at the end of the book I, i'm worried a little bit about being too instrumental too ascetic too focused on functions all the time and allowing a bit of intoxication as as just pure pleasure to, to have a role in our lives. And I think, I think we do need to preserve that, as long as we're, we're individuals who are able to drink in a healthy fashion.
0: But you, you mentioned uh, the pressures in the other direction, not just from governments, but from the medical public health communities, really pushing people towards zero tolerance or zero consumption because of the cancer increases, the heart increases, and uh, certainly the liver impacts. Is, is that then not the right way to go, the zero consumption?
1: no because it, you know i talk about this lancet article this relatively recent article that argues that there's no safe level of alcohol consumption and this is the problem so the public debate right now is distorted by the fact that we don't talk about the positive functional benefits of alcohol so we we know what all the costs are liver damage cancer drunk driving all these bad things we know that and on the other side what is there having fun or pleasure and if you're going to talk, if that's all you're talking about in your, your cost-benefit uh, analysis, alcohol is going to lose, fun is always going to lose when it's weighed against functional benefits. If you look at it the way I'm arguing, we should look at it in drunk. On the other side of the equation are positive social benefits, enhanced creativity, enhanced bonding, um, enhanced trust. There are ways, uh, uh, relaxation, uh, ability to um, elevate mood and help us adapt to um, the types of kind of lives we live in modern societies. If you then on the other side of the equation have all of these positive functions, you're in a position to make a more intelligent decision. And, and your decision may still be, okay, we've looked at the positive benefits, we look at the costs, we still think the costs are too high. That's a rational decision to make. But you need to make it with all of the data. You need to make it knowing what all the positive functional benefits are. And none of the medical literature on this considers those. It really looks at it purely from a physiological perspective. And I I think that's the wrong way to look at it.
0: We were talking before we started taping about how some of the people who are interviewing you for this book are having fun with it, inviting you on with alcohol consumption along the way to talk about the topic. We should tell people we're not doing that here. We're running on we're caffeine. Not doing we're yeah. Caffeine only. <laughs> caffeine only. <laughs> um, but I, I'm wondering, yours is a very serious book. It, is, uh, it, it, it has footnotes and it's well-researched. Uh, are, are you concerned that people aren't taking the topic seriously enough? Is, and is that your intent, a serious discussion of alcohol?
1: I think al- discussions of alcohol can, can veer into being superficial. Um, so I, do, I think that what, what Drunk is doing is filling an important intellectual niche. Let's have a, an evolutionarily grounded, uh, evidence grounded, history grounded view of the role that alcohol has played in human society from the very beginnings um, from the beginning formation of civilization down to the present day and use that evidence-based account to think intelligently about what the role of alcohol should be in our present day lives and I don't pretend to, to answer this question for individuals. I think it re- it's an individual question. It, if you have a propensity to alcoholism in your family, that answer is going to be different than if you don't. Uh, but it's, it's, we need to, if we're going to make a, a smart decision about how to use this very dangerous substance, we need to have all of the facts at our disposal. And, and that's what I was trying to do in Drunk.
0: What would be the best possible outcome for you after this book is published and you're out talking about it? Do you anticipate being drawn into debates in different places uh, against public health officials, for example? Do you hope uh, governments might ask you to testify? What would be a good outcome?
1: So, for instance, you know, I'm, I live in British Columbia, and we've had some pretty serious uh, lockdowns, and we're, we're coming out of the most recent one now, And our public health officer in BC, Bonnie Henry, is really great. Uh, But I think that when she was, for instance, deciding what the restrictions on bars and restaurants would be, she was thinking the way these Lancet uh, article people, she was thinking in purely physiological terms. And she was seeing, I think, and economic terms. So what would be the economic impact of, of closing down, for instance, indoor dining? I think if public officials start to think about socializing in bars and restaurants, not as just kind of frivolous fun that uh, helps the economy a little bit, but actually as the center of the way humans have socialized since we've been human. It's really at the center of human sociality. People get weird without it. If you take away the pub, people start to get strange. <laughs> they can become less productive, they lose their social ties with other people. So yeah, I would, I would hope that public officials, this is a concrete, very timely example, when they're deciding about COVID lockdowns and COVID regulations, they take seriously the positive social functions of bars and restaurants, instead of just seeing them as kind of frivolous frivolous fun.
0: The book is called Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. The author, Edward Slingerland, thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.